Welcome to the What She Said podcast. My name is Candace Sampson. I am currently in the middle of divorce proceedings, working towards my psychology degree, dating for the first time in 20 years, raising three teenage girls, a senior dog, and two guinea pigs. And in the middle of all this, I thought it would be a good time to buy the What She Said media property. What could possibly go wrong? I've been in the trenches with women across Canada for over a decade now, oversharing on the Yummy Mummy Club, Life in Pleasantville, and on all my social media pages, and I totally do it for the gram. And now I'm coming to you on the radio at 105.9 The Region and on this podcast. Apparently, I have a lot to say, so let's get rolling. Here's a fun statistic for you, ladies. According to the National Health and Social Life Survey, 75% of men always reach orgasm during sex, while only 29% of women do. Huh. Seems like in our fight for equality, we also forgot that we deserve a little more balance in the bedroom. Unfortunately, sex is still a subject we are hesitant to talk about, not only with our partners, but even to ourselves. Getting to know what turns us on, when we like it, and how we want to be pleased is what my next guest is all about. Dr. Jess O'Reilly is a sexologist who wants to help you identify your core erotic feeling and then build on that so you can connect like you've never connected before with your partner. So think of this next podcast with Dr. Jess as your handbook for more equality in the bedroom because wouldn't the world be a much better place if we all had more orgasms? Hi, Jess. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I have to admit this conversation, I have some hangups about sex, I think, about talking about sex. It's, it's uncomfortable for a lot of women. I I hear you. And it's interesting because I can talk about sex all day, all night for work, but I still run into hiccups in my own relationship with my own communication. And I always say that my my partner, Brandon, is better at implementing the communication tools that I teach than I am. So, you know, cobbler's kids have no shoes. I'm working on myself too. So why, let's talk a little bit about why women have so many um, hangups when it comes to talking about sex. Not just in the bedroom, but outside of the bedroom. Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, I don't think it's only women. I think all people really struggle with serious conversations around sex. And, you know, because I work across the globe, I see some some differences across cultures. So some cultures like Western culture, we will joke around about sex and there's a performative element about talking about sex, but folks aren't really diving in to the vulnerabilities. And then when I work in the East, so like say, let's say Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, they will say to me straight up that, that they struggle with conversations around sex. But I find that their willingness to admit that this is a struggle actually empowers them more to make changes and improvements to improve communication. So the fact that you're beginning with uh, the, you know, admitting that sex can be a difficult topic is a really good place to start. But why? I mean, first of all, we have all these expectations around sex, but none of us have ever seen real live sex. You know, in the absence of comprehensive sex education that includes discussions and depictions of pleasure, we know that, that all the data confirms that people are now turning to porn as a form of sex education. And 
porn can be a lot of things. It can be exciting. It can be titillating. It can be entertaining. But it is not designed with education in mind. And so it's a very one-dimensional portrayal. Now, I, I know that there are different types of porn. There are feminist porn. There's far more ethical porn. But most porn that people are finding on the tube sites uh, is not necessarily a fair representation of what real sex looks like. And so if you compare yourself to that, you're always going to feel you fall short. And it really affects our sexual self-esteem. And when our sexual self-esteem is low, of course we don't want to have those conversations. So, you know, it, I, we, we talk about if you watch Jersey Shore as a way to learn about relationships, you'd be in big trouble. If you watched, um, you know, Spider-Man as a way to learn how to exercise, it, again, you can't do those things. You're not a Cirque du Soleil performer. You're not a sexual Olympian. You're a regular person that's probably using sex for pleasure and for connection. And so these, even though these conversations are tough, they're very important. So where you just went, there was just so much in what you just said there. I want to, I want to kind of break down a few parts of it because one education is huge. I think particularly for, for kids in school, starting young to understand that, that, that there's pleasure. It's, it's, you know, we talk very much about it from a reproductive point of view. And so there's that. Also, when you mentioned porn, you know, I have two teen daughters. Um, I, my concern is, you know, who they're dating, what their partner is who have already subjected to and what they've consumed online. What have my daughters consumed online and how is it skewing their interpretation of how a sexual relationship should be? Absolutely. And I, I, so I don't see porn as, as the ultimate culprit. I see a lack of conversation and context as, as the culprit because porn will always be there. It has always existed in some form. I think what we need to have are more conversations with young people about what they've seen, what they know, and most importantly, how they feel. When our parent, parents aren't really asking the questions, like, how do you feel about that? How does that make you feel? Uh, can I offer any support? So when we think about, you know, maybe a young, younger child um, comes into contact with porn, maybe they're 11 years old, and you find out, well, sometimes parents will, like, flip out and get angry at them and create shame, which only intensifies the issues around sex instead of asking, you know, you know, where did you find that? Or I see that you found that. Is, do you have any questions? I want to talk to you about what you're seeing because it, it, it is intended for older audiences. Having said that, I, I'm not telling you you're in trouble. I just want to explain to you that, you know, what that is, is not what it normally looks like between adults and open that dialogue. And I, I worked with a uh, a sex educator, I think her name is Dr. Karen Rain. And she, she reminded us that every conversation you have with a young person, especially as they become preteens and teens, is basically an application to get to have another conversation with them. Because when they're little, you are their person. You're the only person they really get to ask and talk to. But as they get older, you, the way you interact with them, the way you speak with them, the way you are open or not open with them and considerate of their feelings determines whether or not they will come to you the next time. And so I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind. And you're right, it does come down to education. Yes, let's talk about the plumbing. Yes, let's talk about safer sex. But let's also talk about all of the nuances and feelings around sex, right? Why do people want to do it? Why do they not want to do it? What are the potential benefits? What are the potential costs? And how do we navigate this in the real world as opposed to, you know, a, 
abstinence-only approach that we that we have, you know, of course, of course, a rich body of data showing us that an abstinence-only approach does not work because sex can feel good. That doesn't mean that if we tell young people that sex feels good, that they're going to run out and have it. In fact, again, the data suggests that comprehensive sex education that includes a discussion of pleasure does nothing to hasten the onset of sexual activity. So we, we need to start talking and we need to start asking questions. And the younger you start, the better. And, and one quick thing, I know I talk a lot, but uh, sex education is not just about sex. It's about confidence. It's about body image. It's about communication. It's about friendships. It's about consent. It's about boundaries. We are laying the foundation from when they're two years old or younger to say, yes, I like that. No, I don't like that. That felt good. That made me feel sad. We need to give them the language of emotional literacy along with sex education or as, as a core component of it. So we talked a little bit uh, when we recorded a segment for the radio show about um, that you started in education. Uh, when mm-hmm. was that? Was that before the changes to the sexual education program that had happened in Ontario or... Yes. So I I was in education in the mid 2000s. So I was a high school teacher in Toronto in Canada. And we were working with the old curriculum, which was developed in 98 for the junior schools and 99 for the high schools. And then in 2010, McGinty, who is our premier and for Americans listening, that's like our our provincial leader, like the governor of your state. McGinty released the new curriculum in in 10, but then there was a huge backlash, even though I got to tell you, the curriculum wasn't really that different than the old curriculum. I mean, there were some, there were some changes around inclusivity, acknowledging that not everyone's straight, that not everyone conforms to the gender binary, but it got blown out of proportion with, you know, misinformation uh, spread very quickly. And he clawed that back, I think before he left in, in 2010. And then the next provincial government, you know, did some revisions and it was very similar to, to McGinty revisions and then that was an uproar and so now we are the long story made medium short not always short with me is that we are back to our curriculum that was developed in 99 so we're talking 98 and 99 so we're talking over two decades ago and we have significant changes in understanding to even some of the science around for example HIV and STIs and and treatment and testing you know you can now mail in your STI kit. There are companies, so there's a company called Let's Get Checked, for example, and they mail you a kit, you give the sample, they give you a prepaid mailing label and you mail it back and they give you your results online in two to five days. I mean, of course that wasn't around in 1999. Even the way we we address, um, you know, viruses like HIV or herpes or HSV or these very common, uh, HPV, sorry, these very common sexually transmitted infections that are all that these ones in particular are viral treatments are different so working with curriculum that's two decades old uh you know it really is a shame and i i'm very optimistic that we're going to see positive shifts uh, here in ontario and across the globe as the the data continues to roll in that if we start talking about sex and when we say from a sex positive perspective we don't mean ha ha rah rah more sex what we mean is sex can be great and sex can also cause problems. And let's talk about the spectrum of experiences. Well, I wish that people wouldn't get so, um, you know, run from the room like it's on fire or something when you bring up the, the conversation of sex education for young people. I mean, we're only um, helping them, really, by educating them and making them feel comfortable with this topic. It's something they're going to have to deal with for a long time to come. So I don't think personally that we're doing enough when it comes to sex, sex, no. sex education in the schools. Um, but so I want to, you know, because this show is focused on women, though, I'd like to just forward us a little bit because I think 
what we see in older women are some of the results of not receiving that education in school. So now that we're older and, you know, we can make up our own minds and we can learn things, it's upon us to, to learn these things. So let's say, you know, um, most women have problems asking for what they would like in the bedroom. Let's start there. How do you, do you, is it a process? I know you mentioned about determining what your, your core feeling was. Yeah, I mean, it, your core erotic feeling uh, is a great place to start. To think about what emotion do you need to experience in order to potentially have sex with a partner. Really, like, dig deep. Think a little bit about that. You know, how do you like to feel before sex, during sex, after sex? Make it more focused on the emotions than on the act itself. I think it can take some of the, the stress and the stigma out of it. And, I mean, other pieces might be as simple as popular culture. So when you watch a TV show or when you watch a movie, what scenes do you like? What scenes do you dislike? What are the themes that appeal to you? What are the, who are the characters that appeal to you? I think that's a really good place to start for yourself as well as for your partner. And as a hack, if you're a parent, that's also a great way to talk about sex and relationships with your kids to say, oh, what did you think of that? How do you feel about that? Do you have any questions about that? Because oftentimes bridging feelings and difficult conversations to include a third party, meaning a fictional character in a book or on a TV series or in a movie, can help to assuage some of, you know, the, the jitters and the sensitivities and the insecurities and the unknown. So I think a really good place to start is to say, okay, what am I enjoying watching? What sort of, you know, gives me a tingle or makes me feel a little bit of fantasy? Because, you know, I'll talk to a lot of women who say, I don't have any sexual fantasies. And oftentimes it's because we believe that these sexual fantasies must be so detailed and vivid and explicit when in fact a sexual fantasy could be as simple as you know I love I love the way he looked at me or I love the way she looked me up and down or there was an energy in her voice or there was you know a, a, a softness in in their touch and I think all of these considerations give us permission to feel sex um, in a broader array of of scenarios and interactions, uh, but also to not always make it about the boom, 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 you know, again, from porn, it's like in and out and in and out and in and out. When in fact, for many of us, that's not what feels good, right? We have, again, data showing that women who are in relationships with women have far more orgasms with greater frequency than women who are in relationships with men. Uh, we, you know, and this has to do with, you know, again, there's lots of data on this on what they're doing in the bedroom. So if you are just having, you know, penetrative intercourse that doesn't involve foreplay, that doesn't involve talking and teasing and playing, that doesn't involve your fingers and your hands and your toys and your faces and all these other tools we can use from, you know, to create and derive pleasure. That's why we, you know, we're not as orgasmic. And I, I want to be clear, I don't think orgasm is the measure of sexual pleasure, but it, it is one, you know, valid measure for many people. And so if you want to enjoy sex more, we need to broaden our horizons. And I think television is a great way to start because we're seeing far more depictions of sex than the, you know, tearing one another's clothes off. And that's the other thing. Many of us aren't in the mood for sex or we struggle with sex because we wait for sexual desire to occur spontaneously. But the research shows that for most people, desire doesn't just all of a sudden pop up after a day of, you know, going to work, 
bringing the kids home, helping with dinner, all of these things. Desire doesn't just all of a sudden spontaneously occur. We have to cultivate it in long-term relationships. So you actually have to get physically aroused first. And then when you become aware of that arousal, you might experience desire. So the bottom line is if you wait until you're in the mood to have sex, you might never have it. Right. And sex also, though, creates that connection with your partner as well, which is sort of beyond just the sexual act itself. And so, you know, I know myself that when, you know, when I was, my marriage was starting to sort of collapse, sex was like, you know, but, and so that disconnect became greater. Like it is, it all is connected together. Um, And so I think if you want a relationship to work, you have to really do think about that sexual aspect of it. And I think a lot of women put it on the back burner, perhaps. Yeah, and it becomes the elephant in the room. I mean, yes, as you said, for some people, sex is an important piece of connection. Of course, there are people who also don't want to have sex, but you can't be in a monogamous relationship with a partner who wants to have sex unless you talk about your reasons for wanting or not wanting. And I think that's a really important part is that oftentimes we say, oh, I'm not into that. Okay, that, that's cool. You should assert your boundaries. But I'm always concerned when somebody says, I'm not into that, no way, no how, instead of, I'm not into that, let's explore the reasons why. Let's get a little vulnerable. Like, how does it make me feel? Does it make me feel insecure? Does it make me feel jealous? Does it make me feel uncomfortable? Do I feel shame? If I feel shame, can I dig a little deeper and uncover some of the sources of shame by looking at where I received sexual messages growing up, where I receive my sexual messages now, how do I want to retain some of the messages that align with my values and discard and let go of those that don't. So, you know, sex isn't as simple as, oh, if you know, if you get some lube or if you get a toy or if you have one conversation about what you like, your sex life will be forever changed. Those things can all be good starts, but Uh, It has to be an ongoing conversation. And if you care about your relationship, you will have these uncomfortable conversations. Or, and if you don't, you'll make, not if you don't care, but lots of people will make excuses. And I always say you can make change or you can make excuses, but you generally can't make both. Right. So all of these things you just said, this is not something that naturally I think most of us would trip into and figure out how to do. So you wrote a book recently. Uh, So what is the name of the book? Yeah, I have a book co-authored with Marla Renee Stewart. It's called The Ultimate Guide to Seduction and Foreplay. And it's, you know, in the title, we're focused on seduction and foreplay, but the book is really focused on erotic relationship theory. And we include, you know, exercises and hundreds of prompts to get you thinking about your own sexual values, to get you to better understand why maybe you're not in the mood for sex and what you can do to increase your mood if you want to, okay? I'm I'm not here to tell people they need to have more sex. However, if sex is an issue in your relationship, which it is for many of us, I think it is important that we spend some time contemplating what sex means to us, um, how we can improve our sex lives, and how we can communicate our needs to our partner. And, and also, how can we fulfill our own needs if our partner isn't, the, isn't going to be able to do it for us? Because we are mostly responsible for ourselves. We often say things like, oh, my partner, pay, my partner makes me feel this. Okay, your partner might play a role in that particular experience or feeling, but also everything in your life that came before it also leads to that feeling, right? Because if, if I treat you a certain way, 
and I treat your neighbor a certain way. Your emotional reactions might be different because you're different people. So you can say, oh, Jessica made me feel that way. But ultimately, it's Jessica plus the sum of every experience we've ever had. And, and if it's related to sex, it often comes from our own sexual histories, from what our parents taught us, from early experiences, from erotic associations. from and, and this, I think it's important to mention at this point, this really intersects with other components of our identity like gender, like race, like age, like ethnoculture, because the way we experience sex varies according to all these different elements of our relationship and our, yeah. sorry, of our identity. So it's, I mean, I think primarily if I'm understanding what you're saying is that the, the first part of this has to start with ourselves and a lot of, you know, thinking about what we like, what we don't like. Before we actually include our partner in that conversation, we have to be pretty sure on what we would like. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's helpful. I'm not saying that, listen, I don't want to ever tell people how to do things. So if you find it helpful to flesh out some of these feelings, desires, and components of your identity with a partner, and you have that kind of trusting relationship, then sure, they can be a part of that process. Uh, and I don't want to suggest that, oh, you have to be a complete sexual person and really figure yourself out before you can be in a relationship, because most of us don't have time for that. It's way too late. <laughs> uh, so your partner can be a part of the process, but ultimately, you know, it, it's you that gets to take control and decide, you know, what, what kind of sex do you want to be ha- What kind of sex do you want to be having? How does sex affect the rest of your relationship? And if it is, adversely affecting the rest of the relationship are you willing to do something about it are you willing to have these really uncomfortable conversations and get vulnerable like the reason we don't talk about sex is because it feels scary because we feel insecure because we feel inadequate because we we feel scared and so rather than feeling those things oftentimes we rush to judgment, right? So if my partner shares a fantasy and it feels maybe that I can't fulfill that fantasy or that it doesn't align with my values or I have a fear of incompatibility, I might go to my honest emotions or I might just lash out and you know call him a pervert and be like, that's disgusting, don't do that. And so we need to catch ourselves. When you catch yourself judging something, when you catch yourself shutting something down, take a deep breath and say, okay, what am I afraid of here? Like what fear, what insecurity, what other vulnerable feeling could I maybe tap into? I I always tell couples uh, and parents as well to take a a list of feelings, just Google a list of feelings and put all these emotions on the fridge. So when you think you're feeling mad, when you think you're feeling frustrated, can can you look at other options and say, you know what, I'm actually just feeling really lonely or I'm actually feeling really... In, uh, vulnerable right now, or I'm, I'm actually dealing with some grief, you know, especially as we look at, you know, our, our response to this pandemic, there has been a lot of loss of maybe something really clear like a job, but it also might be the connections you had with the people at work or a schedule or something, you know, that you really derived pleasure from that you're no longer able to access in its original form. So I think the, you know, emotional literacy is as important as any other piece uh, when it comes to sexual satisfaction. So do you do, do you do counseling with um, couples then? Is this a, the primarily what you do? I primarily work with groups. So okay. I move around from group to group and we do what you would call like a brief solution focused intervention, meaning it, it's like an education for an evening or the weekend. And then sometimes I will do follow up and I have, you know, a group of wonderful therapists to whom I refer. Uh, I certainly believe in, in the 
the value of therapists and counselors. So if people are looking for, for supports or resources, I can help out with a, with a referral. And the good news in all of this is that now most of these services are available online. So if you have a very specific need, you know, for example, yesterday I had someone with a specific foot fetish and maybe in their smaller city, they don't have access to a therapist who's really tapped into that. But the good news is that, you know, if that therapist is in a larger city or, you know, in another country, they may still be able to offer some supports online. Okay, so let's say then you have a woman who's, you know, discovered that there's something that turns her on, and but she's not sure how to approach her partner about that. She's not sure how he'll react. Um, how do you suggest that people introduce these things to their partner or start having these conversations? Yeah, so I often talk about a three-pronged approach when it comes to talking about difficult topics. You start with the positive, you make an inquiry or offer, and then you ask for what you want in a request format, not a complaint format. So you, let's say, you know, um, I'm going to take a really simple example. Like, I really want my partner to kiss me more. It feels so good when they kiss me. And I find that I'm more in the mood for sex when they kiss me. So I would start with the positive, which is not, you never kiss me anymore, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it feels so good when you kiss me. And I might even add the benefit in there and say, it feels so good when you kiss me. Uh, it, it just really gets me in the mood, right? And then I might say, you know, I, I make my inquiry. Is there, is there anything you want to try? And then I would make my request and I'd make it as specific as possible. Like, can we lie in bed on the weekends just for a couple of minutes? and kiss because uh, it remind it gets me in the mood or reminds me of when we first met or it sets the tone for the day. Uh, if you were to take something maybe a little bit edgier, let's say I want to watch porn with my partner. Um, again, I'd start with the positive and say, you know what, when we have, I might say when we have sex, I just, I feel so much more connected to you and so much more at ease. Right. And then I might make an inquiry like, you know, I know it's, it's not comfortable. We don't really talk about it, but is, is there anything that's like on your mind sexually? Is there anything you want to try? And then I might make that request and say, you know, I was reading this article or I was listening to this podcast and they were talking about how more couples are watching porn. And I'm not sure how exactly I feel about that, but I'm curious. Are you also curious? Right. And so I'm not saying that this is the perfect formula and, and there's a lead in. you want to ask them, you know, is this a good time to talk? You're not going to do this while you have, you know, five minutes in between bathing the kids and reading them a story. But, uh, you know, laying the groundwork for open communication in the relationship is really important. And oftentimes couples will come to you and they'll say, oh, we've got great communication. Everything is great, but we just can't talk about sex. And that oftentimes is not the case, honestly. Usually there's a communication struggle or a power struggle or, a, you know, a specific dynamic that exists across the relationship. And, you know, sex does not exist in a vacuum. It is not mutually exclusive from the other components of the relationship. So if you lay the foundation of the relationship first, and this is why I spend probably 90% of my time talking about relationships and 10% on sex, because if we don't get the foundation of the relationship right first, it becomes very difficult to practice or inject these open, vulnerable communication skills in such a high intensity area like the bedroom. So have you noticed any shifts um, in terms of people's relationships or, you know, inquiries to work with you uh, because of this pandemic? Has there been sort of any changes there? 
Well, it's interesting. What I'm hearing from couples is that they're not in the mood for sex. And of course, all the media has asked me, like, how do we get in the mood for sex? How do we make sure people are having hot sex? And, you know, my thought is pull back. You know, this is for many of us, we're just trying to survive right now. It's not necessarily a time to thrive. And so if you're in the mood for sex, great, go ahead and have it. But if you're not in the mood for sex, please don't apologize. Don't feel badly. But I will suggest that this is a great time to stay emotionally and physically connected with your partner. So even if you're not having sex, can you make sure you're carving out time for physical affection? Can you take 60 seconds in the morning to just connect with your partner? Maybe snuggle, maybe spoon, maybe put your forehead up against theirs and take seven deep breaths. Can you do something to just lay the foundation for some sort of physical affection in the morning? And if you don't have a minute, I find that very hard to believe right now because you used to probably commute to the office. And I know that you know kids can impede these things, but Listen, if it's a priority, you'll do it. I always tell people, you know, if Oprah called tomorrow and asked you to have lunch, you would probably find the time. So you find time for the things that are a priority to you. So if your relationship's a priority, make it a priority. One minute in the morning, and then can you break up your day with one minute of of either physical playfulness or a little favor for your partner to make them feel important. So if you hear them on a stressful phone call, can you go give them a shoulder rub from behind? If you see that they're swamped between meetings, can you help them set up the area? Can you bring them a drink? Just 60 seconds. So I'm asking for two minutes a day to make sure that you stay connected during this kind of challenging and stressful time. Yeah, and that doesn't seem like a lot to ask. And when you're as you're saying that, you know, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that that that's a little uh, gesture that you can give somebody, but it means so much to the person, and also it gives back to you as well. Absolutely, yes. You know, and it could be as simple as a compliment. And we know that compliments have all these positive effects. So I get a I get a boost when I give you a compliment. You get a boost when you receive it. And if somebody is listening, they get a boost too. So when you think about family dynamics, um, you know, spending time to just invest in somebody else feeling good is good all around. Okay, so tell me about your podcast. We have a, we have a few minutes left. I'd like to hear about your podcast. Do you focus on a specific issue? Do you focus on... Um, uh, so, you know, a topic that somebody's brought to you. How do you how do you work your podcast? It is very broad. So it's called the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. It's on all pod, pod, podcast platforms. My non-sexologist partner, Brandon, co-hosts with me. And we talk about everything from emotional literacy to anal sex, to open relationships, to important conversations that couples can be having for a stronger emotional and intimate connection. Sometimes we're interviewing guests and the guests could be uh, other, other they could be psychologists, therapists, porn stars, all sorts of guests. And then sometimes we're just doing exercises, Brandon and and I ourselves. So I have have a course online, uh, 50 conversations for couples that I think are essential for every couple. And people can find that at happiercouples.com. But sometimes we do some of the exercises, like in terms of learning what your sexual values are, Brandon and I did a couple episodes where we just went through the sexual values interview and answered with one another. So it personally, it's such an interesting experience to, to have those conversations with Brandon. I think that having Brandon in the room with me helps me to be myself and open up a little bit more. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a super open person um, because I'm in the public eye. I, I share a little bit, but I don't share everything. But on the podcast, I feel really comfortable sharing because Brandon's there with me and I feel just totally at ease and totally like I always say I feel like Jess instead of Dr. Jess and it's a cool feeling to to finally find something in my business where I feel 
uh, you know, just fully tuned into who I am. Oh, that's excellent. I love that. So does your podcast air weekly? Yes, we release episodes every Friday and we have, you know, probably a couple hundred episodes so people can go back and have a listen. And I try and give people tools. I try, I always want there to be a takeaway. Here's something you can do tonight. Here are four questions you can consider. Here's an activity you can try. Not always, um, but like, for instance, this morning we interviewed the author of Modern Whore, which is a memoir of a, of a sex worker. And uh, the takeaway from, for me, because I asked her, you know, as you're dating and you're forming these very quick relationships with people, and she was saying that she really feels a connection with almost all of her clients. I asked her, how do you cultivate that so quickly? Uh, especially when people are always complaining about how bad dating is. And she said, you know, with my work, there's a transactional element and we know exactly what the expectations are. Here's what I'm paying, here's what I'm doing. And I'm not suggesting that dating should be transactional, but I do think if people were more honest about what they want and what they bring to the table, instead of you know reading this nonsense about like, you know, how to how to lure someone in and how long to wait till you call them, just be honest about what you want. Don't lie and say you want a relationship if you just want to get laid. And don't, you know, say that you don't say that you don't want a relationship if you're actually secretly wanting a relationship. Just be straightforward. And so I find from all of our guests, we're always learning something. I mean, we, we cover research on ADHD, uh, research that's related more to urology, to gynecology. I'm a generalist and I'm, I'm trying to find people from whom I can learn, right? So yeah, I have some expertise in, in an area of this field, but I want to keep learning. And Brandon, of course, loves, loves learning because this isn't his area of expertise. So we try and just find super interesting people. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jess. This was, uh, this was wonderful. And we will look for you on happiercouples.com and on your podcast. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.